Hey everyone, we just had a uh, really extraordinary shiur about Jewish intimacy. This is the uh, 15th segment. Learning about the perfect time to be intimate, not just for the sake of marriage, but also for the sake of creating the highest level of neshamot. Whether those neshamot turn into a baby or not, there's still an extraordinary reward in being partners with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. There is a special time for regular people, and there's also a special time for scholars. And there's also special stories inside this shiur that uh, goes through many different interesting things, the horrible things in society and the beautiful things in the Torah and also the beautiful stories that we get to see and read and teach. Enjoy it, share it, and Bezat Hashem, get holy. We're back here on our Tuesday night lecture of a series, Jewish Intimacy, based on the uh, Holy Sefer from nearly 800 years ago by Nachmanides, the Ramban. And uh, we are now up to our, uh, I believe, the 15th lecture, 15th installment of uh, this lecture. Uh, tonight's lecture will be for the Refuah Shlema, for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat. Uh, Rabbi Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana bat Sarah, um, Avi Mori David ben Esriya, Imi Morati Doris bat Jora. Also for the Atzlacha uh, Rabah of all of Am Israel, all the righteous Noahides, all the wonderful people that continue to uh, watch our lectures, learn Torah with us, look for the truth, find it and observe it and apply to their lives. Uh, so, Baruch Hashem, this uh, series continues to get better and better feedback. Just uh, today I got uh, a couple of people, actually, to uh, send me uh, some feedback on this. Uh, that uh, one, uh, you know, one particular person told me that uh, it literally changed their life in uh, such a fashion that they completely look at the act of intimacy in a completely different fashion, uh, literally from one end to the other. And uh, unfortunately, in the world today, where you have, uh, you know, most people learning intimacy from filthy places. Most people don't consider intimacy as, uh, as something that's really intimate. Uh, they learn it from uh, movies, they learn it from uh, pornography, they learn it from uh, the filthy mouths of people, uh, or even from animals. And uh, the reality is that uh, we've learned already in the last 14 lectures how the Jewish intimacy, how intimacy itself is supposed to be something that's actually holy to the extent where it elevates a person to a much more holy level than they can possibly attain through any other venue. Uh, so, Baruch Hashem, tonight we're starting a new chapter. Uh, before, just to give everybody a uh, reminder, anyone that wants to uh, donate and support this lecture or the rest of the lectures that we do at our organization can go to our website, bezrathashem.org. That's B-E-E-Z-R-A-T-H-A-S-H-E-M.org. Or you could uh, donate on the app, or you could donate on Facebook, or you could donate on um, the uh, bhtorah.org website that we have and many other places that we have, Baruch Hashem, online and in different uh, uh, social media uh, places. And really one of the greatest things that uh, Hashem allows us to do is to teach these things to this generation 
in, in such a fashion where uh, even if it's in my uh, study, I, we could still reach literally tens of thousands of people, uh, things that uh, really were never possible until today. So Baruch Hashem for that. Now, as far as the, uh, uh, the, the subject of intimacy in general, one of the things that uh, on, the, on one end, the, you know, the uh, religious world has always been very uh, protective of the subject and very uh, uh, you know, secretive in so many words uh, to a certain extent about the subject as far as teaching it to the public. Because of course, if a, uh, if a pervert looks at anything, they'll find something bad. Uh, they'll, they'll find something uh, uh, filthy about it. But uh, at the same token, there are many people out there today that uh, are looking for the truth, are looking to elevate themselves and have no concept whatsoever that the uh, ultimate way that a person can elevate themselves after they learn Torah and they observe the mitzvot and they follow God and the, and, uh, and the one God of Israel, not any other foreign religion or foreign belief or, or, or foreign ideology, but rather they follow the truth of the Torah that we got at Mount Sinai, the ultimate way to elevate yourself even further is by the act of intimacy. And of course, one cannot be without the other. If a person just learns these lectures but does not learn Torah, does not observe the mitzvot, these lectures will do nothing for them. On the other end, if a person learns Torah, they could certainly elevate themselves to a very high level, but they will not be able to reach the, uh, the highest level without learning how to sanctify themselves, their marriage, uh, and, uh, and even their children. And even when they're not able to, uh, to create children, to sanctify the different uh, holy neshamot that they're creating, just like Avraham Avinu did with Sarah, where for nearly a hundred years they were together and not able to have kids because Sarah, according to our Torah, did not even have a uterus. Uh, Hashem created her in such a fashion because uh, it says in the Midrash, Hashem loves the prayers of the tzaddikim. He loves the prayers of the righteous. And uh, Sarah, Imenu, and Avraham were together, obviously, as husband and wife for many decades, and uh, yet they were not able to have kids. But of course, they fulfilled the mitzvah because the mitzvah of intimacy is, is a multifold mitzvah. It's not just for the, uh, for the sake of producing children. It's also mitzvah ona'a. Uh, and we're going to go into what that actually means uh, in tonight's uh, lecture. Uh, really, uh, the, the mitzvah itself is, uh, is one of the obligations that every husband in the Jewish world signs off as his own obligation on the ketubah. You know, there are three things that he is responsible for. He has to sustain financially uh, the wife. He promises to do that. He promises to give her, you know, a, a, a clothing. And of course, he promises to, uh, to give her the, uh, co her conjugal rights, which from there we actually learn that uh, uh, this uh, responsibility of providing intimacy is actually on the husband, not the opposite, like some people think. This does not mean that the woman can do whatever she wants, of course, but at the same token, we see that the actual obligation is on the husband. Uh, and thereby, the, the responsibility to learn about these issues is on the husband, you no know, less than it is on the wife, uh, and even more so on the husband, especially since the husbands are the ones that are studying more Torah than wives typically. So uh, in this generation, sometimes it's a little bit opposite, where sometimes you'll find the, uh, the wives becoming small Torah scholars uh, and yet the husbands barely know how to keep Shabbat. Uh, but, uh, of course, we always have to look at things based on the tradition, based on how things are supposed to be, based on how they've always been. Uh, and yet, in the, uh, in the world today, we have many times 
people have no concept, even in the religious world, have no concept that intimacy is supposed to be something holy, even if you're not producing children. Uh, his intimacy is supposed to be something holy that can elevate you to a much higher level, uh, even if it's a, uh, you know, well into your later years. And what uh, Avram Avinu did with Sarah is create neshamot throughout all of those years because their act was so holy, they created all of the neshamot, all of the souls of the future converts. And this is actually something that is still being done today. Each time a, uh, a couple is together in a holy manner, they're able to actually create holy neshamot of converts. And this is uh, one of the uh, amazing things that we learn from our sages where each time a uh, convert, uh, someone comes from a different religion, whatever they grew up in, whatever their uh, uh, foreign belief was, they abandon those foreign beliefs of Christianity and Catholicism and Islam and Buddhism and all the other uh, uh, different beliefs out there. And they uh, want to observe the Torah, they want to observe the mitzvot, they want to take it all in, even before they know all of it, but they at least know the basic minimum of how to live like a Jew. They go to a Orthodox Bedin and convert. And one of the uh, steps uh, that, uh, you know, for men is to get circumcised and then dip into the mikveh. And for women, it's simply to go into the mikveh. And uh, one of the things that uh, we learned from the Rambam and from the Gemara and the Zohar is that at that moment that they actually dip into the mikveh, they may not feel it at that very moment, but certainly they're receiving a new neshama, a new soul. And that actual soul is not only changing them spiritually, uh, because that new soul, that new Jewish soul is much greater, much bigger than the soul that they got when they were born as a non-Jew, but it actually, even according to the Khatam Sofer, even changes them physically. And Baruch Hashem, since we've had the merit to convert many people over the years, uh, we've heard many stories, we've witnessed many stories where people literally have a physical reaction at the moment they receive that soul. Sometimes it's in the mikveh, but most of the times it's not. Most of the times it's after. It could be an hour later, two hours later, a day later. Either way, there's some type of physical, uh, physical reaction, physical difference. And the Khatam Sofer actually even says that there could be literally physical differences made over time on that person that uh, can change their, their course of their life. I've even witnessed one particular uh, uh, case where a person literally grew up with a very strong and scary phobia. Uh, phobia is uh, not something uh, uh, that is a, you could just say, uh, stop you know, being afraid of something. Phobia is something that's a, uh, a psychological state of mind. And after this person converted, the phobia literally disappeared. We had other people that uh, had physical differences happen to their body. And these new souls are creations, are holy souls that are creations uh, of Avraham Avinu. Uh, they were at Mount Sinai. But even today, Chazal teaches us, and also the Arizal goes into it, that uh, there are holy couples today that are creating new souls even till this day. Now, some of these souls are going to go into converts in the, uh, in the world uh, right now, and some of them are simply going to be used for uh, different, uh, different causes that Hashem has in the world. But needless to say, the act of intimacy is something that is much more, uh, much deeper than uh, what people can possibly learn on your traditional uh, social media that's out there. Now, the Ramban is uh, now going into the third chapter. <coughs> In this third chapter, 
is, uh, is uh, titled The Time of Union. In so many words, this is the, uh, the, the second path that he discussed early on where he told us there are multiple paths, a handful of uh, paths in order to achieve the ultimate uh, holiness in the act of uh, intimacy between a husband and his wife. And the second path is the time of union. In so many words, the perfect time. The perfect time to be intimate. Now, of course, there is a time to be intimate. There is a time not to be intimate. And then there is a perfect time. And what does it mean by perfect time? Perfect timing is when a person can achieve the highest level of holiness because they also have additional uh, uh, um, heavenly help for, the, uh, for what's actually being created and what the result of that act is. So when a person looks at the, uh, at the act of intimacy traditionally, uh, you know, if they haven't learned how to be holy, uh, typically they're looking at it from an inappropriate place, uh, especially if they did not grow up with uh, Torah Judaism. But many times, even if a person grew up in a, uh, in a religious home, but they did not really delve into the Parashat uh, Kedoshim, uh, the, the Torah portion where Shem talks to us about all of the uh, aspects of intimacy, how we're supposed to sanctify ourselves. Uh, a person simply does not really understand the, uh, the significance of intimacy. He, they perhaps know some of the sins, but this does not necessarily stop them from sinning. And then they arrive on the, uh, the, the holy holidays. They arrive at Yom Kippur and uh, on Mincha of Yom Kippur, we all have to do it as part of the Mincha, the Viduya Gadol, the Great Confession. And uh, a person that uh, reviews the Machzor before they actually, uh, before the holiday, and actually has the time to really understand what's actually being said there, is shocked. Is shocked at what they're actually saying. It's shocked what they're actually saying I'm sorry for because of how real it is, number one. Number two, because of the fact that it's actually part of everybody's prayer. That we're all obligated to say, I'm sorry for these things. Now, some of the examples that uh, the Vidue Gadol has, uh, where all of us are pleading to Hashem, and really you're supposed to be pleading to Him with an enormous amount of tears and sorrow uh, for committing these sins, whether that you've committed them during this lifetime, during the past year, during uh, uh, this, uh, this Gilgul altogether, or even in a previous lifetime. Uh, but uh, you uh, first tell uh, Hashem that uh, you know that you've made these transgressions and you're not here to conceal uh, any of them. You're here to confess them. And uh, you're asking because the first part of, uh, of asking for forgiveness is to confess. Confess what you've actually done. And then the Vidue Gadol goes into all of the immorality crimes that a person is guilty of. Where you're talking about how we are guilty uh, of things that have violated the Torah. But then it goes into the details. Of course, we go into the details of eating non-kosher food, uh, eating uh, chametz on Pesach, betraying Hashem, not, uh, humiliating the Torah, humiliating your parents, a person uh, disgraced Torah scholars. Many people do not really know how to uh, even honor their parents. In fact, honoring parents is one of the uh, Ten Commandments, one of the extraordinary mitzvot, that a person has to do whatever is possible to perfect that mitzvah. It's a very difficult mitzvah, especially when many of us uh, are not necessarily raised 
with uh, with parents that are uh, let's just say the uh, the best parents uh, you know as far as Torah knowledge is concerned many times in this generation we find our, the prophecy that's mentioned in the Gemara Masechet Sotan page 49b that it says that this generation before Mashiach will be the generation where the children will help the parents do tshuva the children will help parents get closer to God which is the opposite of what things have been historically historically it's always been the uh, the father teaches the son the father teaches the children and the children get closer to Hashem as a result of the teachings of the parents uh, of course the father teaches the Torah but the uh, the mother is responsible for them all day and the Gemara says what is the uh, requirements of a good wife one of them is to obviously uh, to be intimate with the husband uh, when when it's allowed but the other uh, uh, part of it is to raise his kids with Torah as their priority in life if your wife does those two things she's a perfect wife even if she doesn't cook and clean even if she's the worst cook on planet earth even this even that if she's raising your children with Torah as a priority and she uh, keeps you away from sinning by being uh, intimate with you she's considered an eshet chayim the uh, what uh, Shlomo HaMelech wrote about his own mother Bathsheba eshet chayim meaning tza uh, which is uh, the song that uh, we all sing on Friday night be on, during Kiddush. This is the Eshet Chayil. But of course, all of us want more. All of us should try to uh, aspire to do more. And one of the things that we learn here is that when a person honors their parents, they're, uh, they're actually not only honoring their parents, but they're also honoring Hashem, even more so. Even if his parents are not necessarily the biggest Torah scholars, the greatest parents in the world, he should still honor them so long as they don't tell him or her to violate the Torah. Uh, so if they ask you for food, if they ask you to, uh, you know, to give them, uh, uh, to help them get dressed if they're older, if they ask you to take them someplace, whatever they have to ask you to do, you, uh, you need to do it so long as it does not violate the Torah. And the uh, Yalkut Yosef says uh, that the reason why we don't have a blessing on the mitzvah of honoring the parents is because both Jews and Gentiles are obligated uh, to uh, fulfill the mitzvah of honoring the parents. And we don't uh, have special blessings on mitzvot that both Jews and Gentiles are obligated to do. Now, as far as the uh, person that is honoring their parents, the greatest way to honor your parents is by learning Torah. And in fact, getting to a point where you're teaching other people to honor parents because when you teach other people and in fact even if you rebuke other people that are not honoring their parents that is in essence a way to honor your parents because people see that oh you know how to honor parents it's a uh, already uh, uh, a great uh, praise for your parents but of course people that did not <clears throat> grow up with Torah did not grow up with this type of Musa this type of truth <clears throat> Grew up, unfortunately, in a, in a, in a world where the uh, television was their uh, number one teacher. Uh, the, the rappers and the uh, different uh, songwriters were their, uh, were their uh, idols uh, and different athletes were their uh, role models. <clears throat> so that's why when we arrive at the Vidui Gadol on Yom Kippur, when we say these things, we realize that uh, it's very possible that we have sinned these sins uh not just in our previous carnations but in fact in our very lives and could very well be even in the past year where we uh start talking about not just violating the torah and not eating kosher and not observing shabbat and not uh, honoring parents but then we go into having sinful thoughts that uh come day by day 
or having a tumat uh, keri, where it's a seminal impurity at night, where a person goes to sleep and there's seed comes out of their body. Uh, this is, uh, uh, although this is not something necessarily that a person can plan for, it is certainly something that they can control if they protect their eyes. As the Gemara in Masechet Avodazara says that um, if a person protects their eyes and does not look at immodesty during the day, those evil thoughts and dreams will not come to him at night. But if a person has been watching pornography in different Hollywood films and Netflix and Hulu and all this filth, uh, that's on YouTube and everywhere else on a regular basis, then surely they're going to have these seminal emissions. And those seminal emissions are considered a sin. But the worst possible uh, thing that a person can do is the next one, where he says, where a person wasted seed. Uh, you know, they, they emitted semen wastefully. Now, even though today the, uh, the teachings of uh, um, semen retention has become even uh, popular among the Gentiles, has become popular among uh, people in the world for health reasons. Uh, But uh, needless to say, this is one of the fundamentals of Judaism that has been taught since the beginning of time, where Hashem punished the sons of of Yehuda, Eren Onan, with a death penalty because they wasted seed. Hashem punished the generation of Noah by destroying the world because of wasting seed. Hashem punished Sodom and Gomorrah because of wasting seed. All of this wasted seed led to other types of perverted acts, especially the uh, perverted act of homosexuality, which will forever be an abomination in the eyes of Hashem, which I believe some people are waking up to realize that it is a problem once they are starting to see in the media more than uh, uh, enough pedophile stories hitting uh, more than enough uh, disgusting uh, uh, stories where you have uh, you know, uh, gay couples adopting a, uh, a child and then raping him like as what's come out in the media over these uh, last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, this uh, just filthy, disgusting people. So here we have a, uh, a, a situation where we're saying we're sorry for these things. But then the, uh, the um, Vidue Gadol continues and letting us know what this wasted seed ends up doing. It created a destructive demon with the power to destroy. And we have filled the house with, with the spiritual idols, destructive forces and idolatrous spirits. All of these different things are created when a person wastes seed. All of these things are created when a person sins against Hashem, especially when they are doing something that is sexually immoral. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, and the reason why the Shulchan Aruch uh, writes that the worst sin in Judaism is wasting seed. It's not that it's worse per se than uh, desecrating Shabbat or worshiping an idol, but it's called the worst sin in Judaism because it creates the most amount of demons, the most amount of destructive forces that put more uh, pressure on a person to sin further, to take things to an even further place. And as we've said in previous lectures, the Ben Ishchai, the Got Moshe by Rav Moshe Feinstein, and many, many other Chachamim also uh, uh, say that it's forbidden for a woman to uh, to do the same thing with uh, 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 because she also creates the same destructive forces herself. And we also are aware that women also have these types of dreams. 
these types of dreams don't come out of nowhere these types of dreams are as a result of actions if a woman is not modest with our behavior with our speech with our eyes she thinks that just because she's a woman she's allowed to look at anything and everything this is 100 wrong you're obligated to protect your eyes no less than a man is obligated to protect his eyes and when a person is sexually immoral they're creating destructive forces that will literally destroy his life not just on a physical perspective which we've discussed extensively in previous lectures but on a spiritual perspective hence the reason why this time of the year during the time of shuvavim it's an auspicious time to do tshuva for it it's not that it's easier to do tshuva uh for wasting seed and sexual immorality but it's a special time where if one really aspires to do tshuva where they take on themselves to stop being sexually immoral where they take on themselves to learn more Torah they take on themselves to do tikkunim uh which are things that literally can help you erase the sin from the past so long as you do the rest of the tshuva that's necessary such as stopping the act these types of things are I uh, have a uh, special elevation at this time it have a special significance at this time and also a higher level of success but of course a person that does not help themselves heaven does not help so here we see in the Vidui Gadol that uh, these types of things are part of everyday prayer whether you're Ashkenazi Sephardi if you're Syrian Moroccan if you're from Tripoli if you're from Poland if you're from anywhere in the Jewish world you read the Vidue Gadol on Yom Kippur on Mincha and Chachamim specifically put it on the Mincha of Yom Kippur because they already are aware of the laziness of man that uh, sometimes will miss the morning prayer because they're tired because they're fasting and therefore they wanted to make sure that this particular vidui is said by all of Klal Israel because all of Klal Israel is guilty of some sorts uh of of these particular sins and then it goes even further goes into the further of the sins of incest homosexuality uh bestiality the uh, uh adultery uh adultery that uh unfortunately was uh things that have become all too common in the world today i remember one time we gave a lecture in uh uh here in uh florida where we had Bo Hashem, a decent sized crowd and uh there was a uh, a woman that uh asked questions throughout the whole lecture and uh you know questions were very particular and very uh, uh good questions but then uh you know at some point she asked a question that I just said to her listen you know this particular question let's just deal with it in uh you know after the lecture because this particular issue does not uh help the rest of the class uh the rest of the people here and then we started talking about it and she started telling me about what is happening in her life and uh how uh you know the uh immoral sexual immorality adultery uh all types of you know things that are a hundred percent forbidden are uh you know are are happening as a standard in in in, in, in their religious communities and uh i couldn't believe my ears i mean i guess i was naive at the time to think that uh, perhaps the religious world uh is at least protected from some of these things but uh, unfortunately that was a very big mistake uh and uh i see much more years later 
with all the different types of people that are coming from the different uh, uh, religious communities around the world, literally telling me that uh, these types of things that we try to help the Jewish world uh, uh, do tshuva for are as relevant in the Frum community as they are in the uh, non-religious community. And uh, the, the type of things that uh, people are taught in, uh, in schools today have nothing to do with sexual morality. In fact, it's quite the, uh, you know, quite the opposite in some cases, or it's just simply avoided. We even have some yeshiva bachurim telling us that uh, when it came to the uh, part of the Torah, part of the written Torah, uh, the, uh, the whole uh, incident between Yehuda and Tamal, uh, was simply skipped by their uh, by their teachers. They didn't want to learn about this or the uh, the real details of uh, what happened during a generation of Noah. They skipped these details. They don't want to talk about them. And many times you have religious people growing up knowing the basics of mitzvot, except the ones that are part of the foundation of Judaism. And it's important for a person to know that. When you're praying to a Kadosh Baruch Hu, you have to have kavanah. You have to have full intention when you're praying to Him. And if you don't know what you're saying, obviously you're not going to have intention. So the it's it's really a uh, great suggestion for a person to take on themselves the uh, the uh, the time and uh, and, uh, and 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 really they put the attention into reading these types of uh, uh, things, whether it's reading your machzor. Uh, now, many months before the high holidays, to see that this is what you pray for every single year. Uh, the Vidui Gadol by Rebenu Nisim is something that all of Klal Yisrael accepted upon themselves. The, uh, the issues of morality and Kedusha are things that are part of the foundation of Judaism. It's not some type of mystical teachings that are uh, only for the select few. And if a person takes this stuff seriously and uh, runs away from the sins, then they could have a much more successful time attaining real kedusha and real happiness in their marriage. Now, the mitzvah of onaah is uh, of the the uh, the marital union uh, is not just something that a person needs to fulfill, uh, but also has to take into account that there are specific times. There are specific times where there will be even higher level of holiness attained as a result of a person uh, uh, taking advantage of this particular time, uh, even restraining themselves to focus on these specific times. And that's what the uh, third chapter, uh, second path of the Gerat HaKodesh uh, discusses. Where the Ramban says, The Lord, may he be blessed, said in the Torah, and he brings a verse from Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, if he marries another, he must not withhold from this one her food, her clothing, and her conjugal rights. Conjugal rights are literally translated as the season, a time, or a proper time. The seasons specified in the Torah are interpreted in the Talmud, Gemara Masechet Ketubot, page 61b through 62. Since the times for the union varies according to the situation of each man and his profession. So here we see that the obligation of marital union is not something that is a suggestion or rabbinical, but rather it's a Torah obligation, where the uh, Ramban is uh, letting us know that uh, here in Exodus chapter 21, we're going to find the source for this mitzvah. 
In fact, before this particular verse, the uh, we see that the um, the Torah says that uh, a person uh, shall deal with her according to the rights of young women, already letting us know that women are the ones that are in the owner of this mitzvah. This is the reason why it's forbidden for a man to uh, to um, make a nedel, make a vow to not be with his wife for an extended period of time. Uh, because if he uh, doesn't want to be intimate with her, she can obligate him to give her a divorce, give her a get. Because he cannot make a nedel for something he doesn't own. She owns this mitzvah. And then the uh, Torah says, like the Ramban quoted, if he shall take another in addition to her, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marital relationship. So these are the three things that the Torah tells us, that every guy that signs a ketubah is a, uh, obligated, is in essence signing a deal with his wife, that these are the things that he will give her as a result of her agreeing to marry him. This is a purchase, if you will. He is purchasing her in return for these obligations. Now, the Ramban here is telling us that this particular union is not just something that a person should think of, oh, wait, you know, we can be intimate whenever I feel like it, or whenever she feels like it, or whenever I want. Now, technically speaking, if as long as the wife is not Nida, you're allowed to be with your wife. But of course, if a person does not want to arrive in the heaven of horses and dogs, and actually arrive at the heaven of, of tzaddikim, they have to look at things more than just the, the basics. Now, of course, there are different levels. There are different levels that we will discuss today. Uh, a person cannot imagine themselves to becoming a tzaddik overnight. A person cannot imagine herself and fantasize into becoming a righteous tzaddikah, uh, uh from 3,000 years ago overnight and say, you know what, I'm going to go for the whole thing overnight. And I'm going to do everything that the Ramban says that the highest and most holy people do. Why? Why not? Because although it's obviously not something that a person uh, uh, should, uh, you know, do freely whenever, uh, it's even more so a person needs to know that their ambition to be holy has to take into account how it affects them as well as their spouse. If your ambition to be holy and, and you are restraining yourself to uh, not be intimate uh, throughout the times that it's permissible with your spouse, uh, you're restraining yourself to only, let's say, being together once a week on Shabbat, uh, like the tzaddikim do. Uh, and, but that's causing your spouse to become you know, perverted in their mind, to waste seed, to think about adultery, to make all types of sins. Of course, your uh, aspiration to become righteous overnight is not a good one. In fact, it's a mitzvah ba It's a mitzvah that comes in the way of sin and is not even considered a mitzvah. So you have to take into account that when you're taking on more holiness on yourself, you have to also take into account where your spouse stands. And not just simply decide for the couple on your own that you're going to become the Ramban overnight or, uh, or his wife overnight. So this is one of the things that a person take, has to take into account. Now, the Ramban says, first thing you need to know about the mitzvah of ona'a is what it actually means. Now, ona'a comes from the word ona. 
Ona is a means season or time. And uh, the uh, the Gemara in Masechet Ketubot, page 61b, gives us a clarification of these specific times that the uh, husband and wife uh, are uh, supposed to be together. Now again, there is the permissible, there, and then there is the obligation, and then there is also ideal. And each person has to think with their head clear to know where they and their spouse stand. Now the Mishnah in Masechet Ketubot, page 61b, says the following. If one pronounces a vow prohibiting his wife to have marital relations with him, Bet Shemai says that if the term of the vow was up to two weeks, he needs to divorce her, meaning she could obligate him to divorce because if he says, I'm not going to be intimate with you for a month because I don't like you anymore, because you're uh, fat, because you're skinny, because uh, you said such and such to me, because the last meal you uh, cooked for me tasted like it belongs in a zoo, uh, and such and such, he has a reason that he thinks is a, enough of a reason to punish her, and he's not going to be intimate with her for more than two weeks. Bet Shemai says she can obligate him to divorce her. Why? Because the mitzvah of Ona'ah is hers, and it's not for him to take from her. Bet Hillel says one week. If he uh, says he's not going to be intimate with her as a punishment, for more than a week, she can obligate him to divorce. She could obligate him to divorce. Now, the Mishnah then adds that scholars, people that are learning Torah, are allowed to leave their wives to go study Torah without permission for 30 days. And laborers may leave for one week without permission. What does this mean? In the previous generation, it was much more common where Torah scholars would uh, elevate themselves and study far from home. Uh, they would go study with a specific uh, Rav uh, for an extended period of time. And of course, if a person is going to go uh, for an extended period of time, they, uh, they have to uh, uh, see if their spouse agrees. But Torah says that if it's a Torah scholar, he has permission to go even without his wife's permission up to a month. Up to a month. If he's a laborer, he works, he studies, of course, each day, but his main time is spent on labor, on, uh, uh, you know, making money. He's allowed to leave for one week without getting any permission from her. But then it goes and it defines it. Because there are certain people, especially in those days, that their profession itself is known to the woman that they married, that they go away for much longer than a week at a time. They go away for months at a time and sometimes even longer, especially in those days. So then the Mishnah elaborates the conjugal rights of a wife that are stated in the Torah are defined as follows. Tayalin must be intimate with their wives every day, meaning every day that they're allowed to be with them because she is spiritually pure, she is not nida, she went to the mikveh, any woman that uh, has never gone to the mikveh, a Jewish woman that has uh, is, uh, uh, been married but never went to the mikveh, uh, needs to go to the mikveh even if you no longer have the time of the month. You have to go one time 
fulfill the mitzvah, and Baruch Hashem, it'll be a very big tikkun for you, and it'll bring a lot of blessing to you. Uh, needless to say, if a uh, woman is married, and uh, she still gets our time of the month, the family, family purity is the foundation of Judaism. A woman that is not willing to go to the mikveh is a woman you cannot be married to. There are other things that a woman can do, and, uh, and uh, you can stay married to her. But there are certain things that if a woman does, or if the, ob- of the, of the uh, husband uh, obligates her to violate, divorce is, uh, you know, is right away. One of the, uh, the, the main thing is the mitzvah of uh, family purity. Meaning that if, let's say, for example, a, uh, a woman decides or a man decides one day, they decide that uh, they don't want to be Torah observant anymore. They don't want to eat kosher anymore. They don't want to keep Shabbat anymore. Now their spouse still wants to be Torah observant, still wants to keep Shabbat, still wants to keep everything. Now if that person that's not keeping Torah and mitzvot anymore says, listen, I'm going to do my thing. I'm not keeping anything anymore. You do your thing. I'm not going to bother you. You could stay married to this person. But if he tells you or she tells you, listen, I'm not keeping anything anymore and I'm not going to keep the family purity, meaning I'm not going to the mikveh anymore. So the woman says, I'm not going to the mikveh anymore. And the husband says, I'm not going to allow you to go to the mikveh. I'm going to want to be with you even when you're nida. That is grounds for immediate divorce. Now, of course, the rabbis try, try to see if there's a way to reason with these people in order to avoid divorce. But this is grounds for immediate divorce. Why? Because if there's no family purity, there's no Jewish marriage. And all they do are sins, sins that are literally murdering the neshamot. They're murdering their souls. They're murdering their, uh, their, their family. They're, they're putting their kids, if they have kids, uh, they're putting their lives on the line. I mean, literally, they're doing things that are much, much worse than they can possibly imagine. But if it's at a time where uh, the, uh, the, the woman is pure, she has gone to the mikveh, and the husband is a tayal, then uh, they, need, they must be intimate with, with the wife every day. What's a tayal? The Gemara elaborates on a tayal in several different ways. In so many words, if the husband is perfectly healthy, he's strong, he's, uh, he's at home every day, he has the type of profession that's relatively easy, no manual labor, he's, uh, you know, he's not uh, you know, building buildings or anything, He's like, I don't know, maybe he's like a uh, guy that uh, works behind a desk, 9 to 5, uh, has a pretty easy life, he has the uh, financials are okay. He is obligated to be together with his wife every day if she wants. If she wants. If she obviously, if she doesn't want to be every day, then they obviously can do it less. But nonetheless, he has, his obligation is every day during the time that she's pure, which is approximately half the month. Laborers twice a week. What's laborers? Laborers are people that are like uh, tailors, weavers, builders, people that are doing manual labor, that are doing strenuous work, uh, where even if these people come home every day, which is the norm of today, unlike the past generations, uh, still the fact that their work is so difficult and so physically uh, uh, takes, takes a toll, they lack the strength to uh, be together with their wives as frequently as the uh, first example. So therefore, the Chachamim decreed that twice a week is their obligation. 
החמרים אחת בשבת. The donkey drivers once a week. Why once a week for the donkey drivers? How hard could it possibly be to be a donkey driver? It's the donkey that's doing all the work. It's not about the donkey or you doing the big work. It's just the profession of being this type of uh, merchant is uh, typically a person that's away from the uh, uh, away from the house six six days at a time. This is the equivalent of someone as a truck driver. Usually truck drivers, and I've met quite a few, especially when I was on Wall Street. I had a few of them uh, as uh, as clients. Uh, I had one guy that had a uh, actually owned a trucking company, a huge trucking company out there in Michigan. Uh, he had uh, he always told me the different numbers of trucks that he had. One time I went there to uh, to go visit him, and the trucking business was a uh, uh, was one of his businesses. But he also had all types of uh, queries of rocks and so on. Interesting fellow. Uh, anyway, these t- truck drivers, they live a very difficult life. It's certainly not the ideal profession for a Jew uh, because if you're constantly in a truck, you're constantly traveling throughout the week, it's very difficult for you to stop each time you have to pray with a minyan. It's very difficult for you and it's sometimes impossible because it conflicts with the profession. You know, because the main reason of why the company is hiring you is so you get to from point A to point B at a specific time. And if you can't meet those uh, those metrics, they won't hire you anymore. Uh, and in fact, you end up, you could even lose money on the job. Uh, the other reason is the fact that it's impossible for a person to really live uh, the, the beautiful parts of Judaism, uh, raising your kids with Judaism, uh, raising uh, uh, your, your whole household to love Judaism, enjoying the holidays. Every time it's a difficulty because if you don't work, you don't get paid. You know, so it's a very difficult job to have. Uh, as a Jew, I would never recommend it for anybody. But of course, I've met a few Jews that are Torah observant that have this job. But they all tell me it's very, very difficult to do. And it's even more difficult to leave. Uh, it's even more difficult to leave. Why? Because again, what do you replace it with? You know, to, to go from being a truck driver to be an Uber driver, uh, it's not exactly the, uh, the uh, easiest transition. Let's just say that. And it's not necessarily the, the easiest skill to, uh, to, to, uh, to replace. What I would recommend for people is if they are good and, uh, and uh, they like driving, perhaps consider working for companies like uh, UPS or Amazon or, uh, or companies that uh, don't require you to leave the state for so long. Uh, and in fact, even uh, not leave the state at all. You just go to your uh, job every day, like some of the people that I know that work for UPS. They have some of the greatest schedules and compensation for it. And uh, they, some of them have literally become millionaires as a result. I've never really met uh, a, a truck driver that was a millionaire. I've met truck driver uh, company owners that were successful. Uh, but the, uh, the drivers, many times, it's, it's a very hard profession because there's also seasons. There's huge expenses if the truck goes bad. Point being is, is that it's a, uh, the donkey drivers here are only obligated to be together with their wives once a week because the nature of their job is that they have to travel for almost a week at a time. And the camel drivers, once in 30 days. Why once in 30 days? Because these are also merchants, but these merchants travel for a lot longer. They usually travel for a, uh, a month at a time. A month at a time, not a uh, um, not just a week at a time. These are t- people that uh, could even have you know white collar jobs. They could be executives, you know, CEOs, CFOs. They could be uh, uh, in the uh, consulting business. They could be a uh, you know politician. But they need to travel a lot. 
you know, people that are power brokers, uh, people that are in this type of white collar profession, many times have to travel for most of the month. And I've met many of those. I did a lot of business with a lot of them in the past where I had one guy that he lived in Tennessee, but he would travel to New York every week. So every Monday morning, he took the red eye flight to, uh, to New York from Tennessee, worked until Friday night and then fly home for the weekend on, uh, on, you know, on Friday night. Obviously he wasn't Jewish, but uh, the point being is, is that this is a profession that people choose. It's hard for me to understand uh, that type of mentality, but nonetheless, this is something that exists, especially here in Western society. Uh, people that are that do it typically are high-income types of people. But as far as family values, family life, very, very difficult to, uh, to have those types of things when you are away from your family for so long. Uh, now, again, if you're a banker or an investment banker, you have to travel sometimes you know, every day or every other day to go meet different clients, different investors, uh, different companies, all types of things. People that travel a lot and are barely at home. These types of things take a toll on somebody. So the responsibility of a person like that, even if they're physically healthy, cannot be the same responsibility as someone that's healthy and comes home every single day. And of course, the sages took that into account and they said, this type of person is obligated once in 30 days. Sailors, of course, have the greatest leniency because sailors, whether they are in the U.S. Navy or other types of uh, uh, countries, Navy, usually you're going into the sea for months at a time. And this is something that uh, requires them to be together once in six months. Once in six months. So now we see that the uh, here we have uh, a lot of the regular everyday people. But we don't see the Mishnah specifying the details of the Talmud Chacham. That we're going to get to in a moment. Here, the Mishnah first addresses the everyday person. The everyday person that's focused on work. Of course, we're all obligated to learn Torah every day. But, you know, the, uh, not, uh, most people cannot handle learning Torah as their vocation, as something that they do all day, every day. Uh, and some people, uh, you know, are even successful at learning Torah, even if they work. Needless to say, there are some of the major gedolim uh, were uh, uh, were also people that worked for part of their day. The Or Chaim Kadosh uh, was known as uh, a person that uh, worked, and uh, because of his job, he, uh, we saw one of the greatest miracles since the time of Daniel, when he worked for uh, an Arab sewing uh, for him, and there was a big um, order from uh, the king uh, there in, uh, in uh, Morocco that uh, wanted a, uh, they had a big event, some type of wedding event, and uh, he ordered a new outfit for his entire uh, kinghood, that, uh, his entire palace uh, that was due in uh, six months. And uh, this Arab, of course, took the money, was happy to take the order. His only problem was that his employee, his only employee, was Ora Chaim HaKadosh, Rabbi Chaim ben Atal, and, uh, and he only worked a few hours a day. As soon as he made enough money to meet the expenses he needed for that day, he would immediately stop working and go learn Torah. So now after he, this Arab got, this Moroccan uh, 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 non-Jew got uh, the, uh, um, uh, the money, and he got the order, he told them, listen, Yehud, you have to work more. Oh, Chaim says to him, I work for Hashem. I don't, you know, I work as much as I need to eat for the day, and then I go lurk, 
Torah. That's how you work. No, no, but you have to understand if you don't do more, we're not going to meet the uh, the demands of the king. Then he's going to kill us. He's like, I work for the bigger king. I work for the king of kings. And of course, there's nothing that this uh, guy can do about it. And when the time came to deliver the uh, uh, the uh, the actual goods, it wasn't done in time. The king was furious, wanted to kill the Arab. But of course, who is he going to blame? He blames his employee. No, no, it's not my, it's not my fault, your highness. It's, it's whose fault it is. I gave you the order. He goes, no, no, it's this Yehud. What's Yehud? The one that works for me. He doesn't want to work. Did you tell him that it's for me? I'm the king. Yes, I told him. He says he doesn't care. He works for the bigger king. What bigger king? He works for God, Allah. Bring him. Let's see how Allah helps him. They take Orachayim HaKadosh. Orachayim comes, has a sefer in his hand, and the king says to him, you don't want to work. He says, I work, but I work for what I want to eat and what I need to eat. After that, I work for Hashem, I learn Torah. He says, because of you, I'm going to be embarrassed. We're not going to be able to have these new uh, clothing. He says, I'm, it's not in my control. I have, I've always done this way. Of course, this uh, king did not care for this, did not believe in this, and immediately commanded his soldiers to throw Orachayim HaKadosh into his dungeon of lions, just like happened at the time of Daniel. They put Orachayim into the place cage of lions, lions that have been starved for a few days because everyone likes to show but to their surprise, the lions don't even get close to Orachayim. After a little while, people got bored, they left. And the next day, they see nothing happened. This happened for a couple of days, and then they tell the king, Your Highness, we, they won't eat him. The king already thought that the Jew already died, he forgot about him. What are you talking about? Who? The Yehud. What do you mean they don't eat him? They won't eat. They're playing with him. They're afraid of him. Did you feed them something else? No. They haven't eaten in a week. The king himself comes off of his throne, runs to see this with his own eyes. And as soon as he sees how scared the lions are at the feet of Orachayim HaKadosh that is studying Torah intensively inside the cage without eating, without drinking for a few days already. Immediately he starts apologizing. I'm so sorry, Chacham. I'm so sorry, Tzaddik. I'm so sorry, I did not know that you were a holy person. Please forgive us, forgive us. Immediately they take him out of the uh, cage and the king begs him to forgive him. Please be my friend. So this Rabotai dedication to the Torah can sanctify a person but of course there are levels of sanctity there are levels of Kedusha now if a person is an average person they still have to learn Torah they still have to do mitzvot but if their main uh, uh, vocation is uh, whether it's being a truck driver or being a stockbroker or being a banker or whatever they're doing selling shoes whatever it is that they're doing they're not able to learn Torah all day that of course takes its toll 
and the Chachamim say that a, uh, a person has to know where they stand as far as their obligation to their wife because if they are not uh, fulfilling this uh, mitzvah and they're depriving their wife of intimacy when she wants to be together he simply doesn't want to be together they're violating a Torah commandment that's in the uh, Exodus chapter 21 10 that we mentioned and they're violating an Isu Torah and it's mentioned in several places several places according in in Alakha now as far as what happens if a person he was always a truck driver he was always a camel uh, merchant uh, merchant of uh, you know on camels and stuff and traveled for months and then he gets married and his wife says listen I don't want you to be a uh, camel driver anymore I don't want you to be a sailor anymore he doesn't have to listen at that point why I mean he could divorce her but uh he's not obligated to change his the the conjugal rights if she already knew what he was before they got married of course if she's not happy she's gonna leave him uh or worse yet she committed adultery but the point being is is that if she knew what he was and what he worked at before they got married that means she was supposed to know what conjugal rights she actually had whether it's once a week once a month once a uh, every six months whatever it is she can't force him to do anything but if let's say for example he was a banker he was a mortgage broker comes home every day nine to five has a great job makes a ton of money he's physically healthy everything is good but then he decides you know what honey I'm tired of being a banker okay well what do you want to do I'm thinking I'm gonna become a sailor excuse me yeah yeah, I'm gonna be a sailor I'm gonna I just applied to uh the Navy SEALs figured since I'm physically fit and I uh, you know have the ability maybe I'll uh go to Navy SEALs if not maybe at least just be a little seal for them to throw me up and down you know but either way I want to join the Navy or better yet he decides some different profession profession that he's going to become some executive making a ton more money right now he was making 50 dollars a year a good living could live on it and even in the United States in other countries you could be like uh, Rockefeller with that kind of money but in the U.S. it's basic living but now he has a job promotion they just told him listen we have a new division we want you to be the head of that division good like it what's the what's the catch no catch we're gonna pay you a million dollars a year okay that's even better so I go from a hundred thousand to a million exactly okay great only thing is is that it's uh requires you to travel three weeks out of the month you have to go to China you have to go to Singapore you have to go to Japan you know what you're doing business with different countries you have to keep going back and forth report to us back to okay no problem uh let me talk to my wife and uh confirm but I mean from what it sounds yeah I don't see why not he comes home tells his wife honey we're rich she's happy yeah would you buy me well listen before I buy you anything I just want to let you know that I got this uh, promotion at the job they're starting a new division in China 
and uh, they're even going to be allowed to, you know, to do business over there, even though it's very difficult because of the whole communism thing. Nonetheless, I'm going to head a division, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. They're going to pay me. You're never going to believe it. A million dollars a year. hundred thousand a month. What we're making a year, they're going to pay us a month. Great, honey. What's the problem? Go. He says, no, no. The only thing is that I have to start traveling. Traveling where? To all these places. Okay, well, it's okay. You travel, you know, every few months. It's fine. No, 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 honey. Not every few months. Uh, I'm gonna have to travel for uh, three weeks out of the month, meaning I'm only gonna see you about a week a month. The wife looks at him without even thinking twice. No way. I didn't marry you to have a long distance relationship. Yeah, but honey, it's a million dollars. You could set us up right. Five, ten years of doing this, we're good no way if i wanted a long distance relationship i'd make a, a relationship with somebody on facebook no way not for a million not for 10 million he said but it's a million dollars she goes it could be a billion dollars you want to stay married no way Goodbye, but you can't tell me what to do in fact she can not just because divorce no divorce but because of the conjugal rights that a jew is obligated to his wife she actually makes the call here she says listen if you're going to travel that much i'm obligating you to give me the get meaning there's no option for him not to give the get he has to give the get why he's not fulfilling his rights yeah but uh, i'm now becoming a sailor no 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 you can't become a sailor after the fact if you are already a sailor a person that's traveled three weeks out of the month or six months out of the year or whatever it is before you got married and she knew it and she signed up for it yeah then you're right but if you changed it after the fact she has the right to tell you no you're not allowed to do it or you have to give her a get so this rabotai is perhaps a new insight to some people of the position of power that a woman has in fact in judaism and in fact the responsibility that the husband has but even more than anything else to show how the issues of intimacy are of paramount importance in a jewish household now the rambam paskins lalecha in ilchot ishut in chapter 14 he says the obligation of conjugal rights as prescribed by the Torah is individual in nature depending on the strength of each particular man and the type of work that he performs just like we mentioned what's implied is healthy men who are pampered and indulged and who are not employed in labor that weakens their strength but rather eat drink and spend the majority of their day at home should fulfill their conjugal duties every night if their wife wants to be together every night they're obligated to do so now from here also we see that this mitzvah of ona of ona which is translated as conjugal rights it conveys a fundamental conception with regards to the torah conception of marital intimacy that marital intimacy is not for the husband's sake but rather for the wife's sake ona also means respond 
where a man should be responding to his wife's desires and satisfying her wishes for closeness. In fact, the, uh, the Rambam writes commentary on Ilchot Shabbat in chapter uh, uh, 30, Alchan uh, 14, where he says that the uh, intimacy is one of the ways that a person expresses Onik Shabbat, Shabbat delight, which is a separate mitzvah of uh, honoring Shabbat. Now, the Rambam continues and he says, the following rules applies to workers, as he said, tailors, weavers, construction workers, and the like. If they work in the city in which they live, they should fulfill their conjugal duties twice a week. If they work in another city, they should fulfill their conjugal duties once a week. Same thing like the Gemara said, but he elaborates even further if it's a in the city or outside of the city. Donkey drivers should fulfill their conjugal duties once a week. Camel drivers, once every 30 days. The uh, sailors or seamen, once every six months. But then the Ramban goes into what the Gemara went into in the Masechet Tubo, page 62b. Torah scholars. Torah scholars should fulfill their conjugal duties once a week. Their obligation is limited because the Torah weakens their strength. Many people think that Avrechim, Torah scholars, the ones that are kolel and many other kolels around the world, especially in Eretz Yisrael, people that are toiling in Torah all day and all night, they have an easy job. You go try learning Torah for 15, 16 hours a day. Go try learning Torah for 10 hours a day. You'll find yourself more tired after 10 hours of learning Torah than building a building. In fact, most people can't even learn two hours a day. Not because it's not interesting, but because it literally, if, if you're seriously learning, it is very, very serious effort is required. And that's why Torah scholars are only obligated to fulfill their intimate uh, uh, conjugal duties once a week. Because the Torah weakens their strength it's the practice of Torah scholars to engage in marital relations on Friday night. Now, we're going to get into that in a moment, why Friday night? But the next halacha, the Rambam says, he paskins where he says, the wife has the right to prevent her husband from making business trips, except to close places, so that he will not be prevented from fulfilling his conjugal duties. He may make some journeys only with her permission. Similarly, she has the prerogative of preventing him from changing from a profession that grants her more frequent conjugal rights to one that grants her less frequent rights. Just like we explained, this is actually the halakha. The type of profession that a person has, believe it or not, has to do with how much time he has to be with his wife. Now, according to the Torah, a Jew is allowed to marry multiple wives. The Keilot of Ashkenaz, about a thousand years ago, had a Takana made by Rabbeinu Gershon, 
that uh, forbid Jews from marrying more than one wife. I believe that Takana was only for a thousand years, so I believe that Takana is over. But it's still not acceptable in the world uh, that uh, a man will marry more than one wife. In the Sephardic world, the Sephardis never accepted this Takana. But still, the vast majority of Sephardic Jews around the world have not married more than one wife in many years. Uh, with the exception of some in Morocco or in, a, uh, in, uh, in Yemen. But, you know, in, in, in America, Israel, and in, in Europe, things like that, this hasn't been really part of the day-to-day life uh, for many, many uh, years. Centuries, I should say. But according to the Torah, technically there's a permission for a man to marry more than one wife. But he's not allowed to cheat on his wife. He's only allowed to marry another wife if the first wife doesn't mind. If she allows it. Now, but still, he should not marry more than four wives. Even though this is not really relevant per se uh, to any normal person today, regular people today. uh, Still, this answers the question when people ask, wait a minute, but what about, you know, King David and other kings, they, they married multiple wives. Well, the laws of the kings are different. A king was allowed to marry 18 wives. 18 wives. He was also allowed to have concubines. Now, some people think concubines are prostitutes, but they're not. They're just midwives. They're, 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 they're not the full wife. They don't have the rights of a full wife, but they are considered wives. She's only with him. She's not allowed to be with other men. Now, of course, there are different single promiscuous men out there that think, oh, you know what? I don't want to get married, so maybe I'll get myself one of these pilegish. This is complete nonsense. This is just a guy wanting to be promiscuous and thinking that the Torah is going to allow him to do so. But needless to say, a person needs to make sure that um, when he gets married, he gets married for the right reasons. And the Rambam writes, when a man makes a vow requiring his wife to tell other people what he told her, or what she told him, of the jest and frivolities that a man and his wife will occasionally speak of in uh, during a preparation for marital uh, relations, he must divorce his wife and pay her money due to her by virtue of her ktubah. For a woman may not be compelled to speak brazenly and tell others lascivious things. Similarly, if a man makes a vow requiring his wife to take actions during marital relations that prevent conception, or if he makes a vow requiring her to act foolishly, performing acts that have no meaning and are merely foolishness, he must divorce her and pay her the ketubah. Here, the Rambam specifies certain things where a person needs to know that his wife is part of him. It's not just another person that's living with you. It's not a, 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 a baby oven. It's not just some uh, girl that's here today, gone tomorrow. And actually the obligation is to love his wife as much as he loves himself, but honor her even more than himself. Hence the reason why these alakhot are saying that if he tells his wife, I want you to do some things for me what i want you to talk to people about how how it was when you and i are alone 
No. No. What do you mean, no? Uh, I won't uh, I won't give you this. He, if he tells her that she has to do stuff like this, she can obligate him to give her a get and pay her the get. Why? She doesn't have to embarrass herself just because he's his wife. Needless to say, also, during the uh, the intimate act, even though technically they're allowed to do what he's allowed to do what he wants with his wife so long as he doesn't waste seed and the seed goes in the right area where there's a possibility of reproduction even if it's not physically possible because she's already pregnant or she's already passed those years or or other reasons still if he wants to do things that are meaningless or that prevent conception she can obligate him to give her pay the ketubah And the laws are very extensive. One last thing I would say is that on the other end, a woman that withholds, this is Allah number 8 in chapter 14, a woman that withholds marital intimacy from her husband is called a shamuridit, a rebel. And when she's asked why she rebelled, if she answers because I'm disgusted by him and I can't voluntarily engage in relations with him, her husband should be compelled to divorce her immediately. Meaning that if she doesn't want to be intimate with him, even though the obligation is on him to be intimate with her, that doesn't mean that she could choose when to be intimate. Once a year, once every six months. No. If she doesn't want to be intimate with him, she's also violating. She's also violating the agreement. And therefore... He could divorce her without paying her the ketubah. Now, when a couple has achieved holiness, good marriage, they're communicating. Because communication is key to a marriage. If there's no communication, there's no marriage. If all you're depending on is your physical attraction to each other, you should simply put like a one of those clocks or sand clocks or timers to your marriage because it's going to end at some point. That attraction is going to deteriorate. Not because looks deteriorate. Sometimes people become more attractive over time. But rather because that attraction is not enough to keep a marriage together. One of the examples that's very uh, common is simply looking at the filthiness of Hollywood, where beautiful people are divorcing each other and cheating on each other on a daily basis. Where if you haven't been married five times, you're not really considered part of the elite of Hollywood. So the problem is, is that when a person doesn't actually know what marriage is, they could very quickly mistreat marriage. Now we know that if something is in the Gemara, if something is in the Torah, it's not something that's there superficially. It's there because it's real. It's there because it's relevant. It's there because it happened. Whether it's that specific story that happened or other stories like it. Now, One of the problems that people have 
when they don't protect their eyes is that they're quickly enticed to sin since typically starts in the mind then the sin could easily transfer into speech they say provocative things to people that they're forbidden to say such things to but sin could also get to a point where it could be provocative actions even with someone that's permissible to them their husband or their wife but since modesty is of no consequence to them they could actually think that it's perfectly okay to show acts of intimacy in public now when i say act of intimacy your average person is thinking oh wow no i would never do such a thing because you're thinking that it's the act itself no acts of intimacy can be something as simple as giving a kiss on the cheek or holding hands both are forbidden to be done in public hence the reason why you will never see real torah scholars people that have you got or even an average jew that has yirat shamayim ever hold his hand hold the hand of his wife or give her a kiss in public if you see a rabbi or anybody that is showing public affection to his wife needless to say to a different woman know that person is not only a sinner but they're also not a Torah scholar why because it's a clear halacha that you're forbidden from showing public affection now one of the places we learn it from is the Gemara in Maseret Baba Batra on page 58a where it talks about a story of one of the sages Rav Bana, who would mark the boundaries of the burial crypts so that people would not inadvertently walk over the uh, the, the actual graves and, and contract Tumah. And one time he reached the Marata Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah. And he wanted he went inside to go take the measurements there to see exactly where the grave and the size of the graves of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And as he got into a section that most people cannot go to, needless today, today, but today you can't go anywhere almost. But uh, in previous generations, when you were able, a couple of hundred years ago, you were able to go into different parts of the cave. There was a certain part where the graves were nobody would go to because anyone that entered there died. Now he went in there and not only he lived, he lived to tell the story. As soon as he entered that place, all of a sudden he sees Eliezer, Eved Avram, one of the people that Gemara says never died. Eliezer, Eved Avram, sees him and says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm here to take measurements of, of, of the graves over here. I want to see what Avram Avinu is doing. Eliezer replied to Rabbi Bana, says to him, he's right now, he's, I don't know if he's going to let you in. He's lying in the arms of Sarah and she's uh, playing with his hair. So Rabbi Bana says to Eliezer, go and tell Avram Avinu that Rabbi Bana is, enter, is standing here in the entrance. Maybe he would let me in. Eliezer 
goes and comes back to Rabbi Bana and says, Avraham said to him, Come in. Now, the story continues. He also talks about how he wanted to go see the section of Adam Arishon, but he wasn't permitted to do that. He said he only saw the, uh, there was a heavenly voice that came from the sky, said, you have gazed at the likeness of my image. Who is the likeness of my image? It was Adam Arishon, but he was in the form of, ya- of Yaakov. Yaakov had the beauty that was only second to, to Adam Arishon. You saw Yaakov, but you can't see Adam. He saw like the ball part of his foot. You know, the, the heel, not the heel, the, the, the bone part. He says there was like two sons. Anyway, the Chachamim say, what was the problem? Why did is Eliezer there even? And the whole story about how Avraham is there with, his, with Sarah. Why can't you just walk in? Putting the holiness aside. Why can't you just walk in? Chachamim say, first of all, it shows us that there is union between the husband and the wife, even in Olam Emit. That's number one. Two, this Agadah is teaching us that it's improper for a husband and a wife to embrace or make any physical display of affection if they can be viewed by others. Hence the reason why Eliezer had to get permission before he allowed Rabbi Bana to come in. Now on the other opposite side of the spectrum, for people that either don't connect to stories like that, or they do, let's speak their language. The language of today. People walk around however they want, whenever they want. Religious woman once told me a few years ago where she told me about all these different boyfriends she has. I'm looking at a woman that's looked to me like she was 60 years old. She has boyfriends. She looked like she was a Rebetzin. Kisui Rosh and everything, but she has boyfriends. And she's upset that our, our boyfriend has, has girlfriends. I couldn't believe these things. But the Gemara talks about these types of people too. This unfortunately is a language that's not new. And one of the reasons why these types of things happen is because people don't wash their eyes. Those eyes lead to thoughts. The thoughts of sin are worse than sin, says the Gemara Masechet Yoma. Once they start thinking, the next thing is touching, speaking, or a combination of both. And that elevates to things that are forbidden, even if it's with the spouse, and needless to say, if it's with somebody that's not their spouse. But then you tell people, how could you do this? I mean, you're a from person, you're a religious person. And he says to me, listen, she was really beautiful, Rabbi. I don't know. I mean, she was really beautiful. I, I couldn't, I, I don't know what to do. So Gemara says, Sarah Imenu was so beautiful that the most beautiful human being that exists in the world after her, from her time till now, looks like a monkey in comparison. 
And Sarah looked like a monkey in comparison to Chava, the wife of Adam. And Chava looked like a monkey in comparison to Adam Arishon. So we see here, beauty is not a new thing either. In fact, people were much more beautiful in the past. There were special beautiful people of Yerushalayim at the time of Rabban Yochanan. He had the beauty of Yosef HaTzadik, where the beautiful people of Yerushalayim, their skin glowed. Now, of course, nobody's skin is glowing. Maybe they're putting some makeup on. Maybe they're putting some uh, special effects on. But the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And many times if those eyes are looking at someone that's not theirs to look at, it leads to sins. And the Gemara goes into a story with the same Rabbi Bana, this holy tzaddik, where it says that there was once a woman talking to her daughter. rebuking her saying why aren't you discreet when you're doing all of the forbidden things your boyfriends they're getting you cars they're getting you jewelry but everybody knows you have boyfriends why aren't you discreet about it do it quietly you have a boyfriend in Paris let everybody in Paris know that not the people in New York your investment banker in Wall Street, okay, let him think he's the only one. The oil, the oil uh, uh, driller from Texas, make him believe that he's like, uh, you know, he's your guy. But you, the whole world knows you have everybody, everything. Why are you flaunting it? You're not doing it right. Now initially, it sounds like she's rebuking her to make her daughter do tshuva until you hear what happens. And this woman, this mother, says, you want to know how to do it? I'll teach you. You see your father? He's laying over there in the living room. He doesn't feel good. He doesn't realize. Only one out of his ten sons is his, really. Only one. Only one of them is by your father. Meaning that this woman didn't just cheat on her husband. This zona was a, literally, like a prostitute on a daily basis. Because of course, it's not just one time 10 kids are born. And it's not one time you're with a guy and a kid is born, one time you're with the guy, a kid is born. No, no. You know, this is someone that is Cheating, adultery is part of their day-to-day life for a long time, at least uh, more than a decade. She has this daughter, she has 10 sons, and she's telling her, you want to know how to cheat? Cheat with style. Do it like me. Your father doesn't even know that out of his 10 kids, only one is really his. Now, what she doesn't know is that this father who looked like he was sleeping because he was very sick, heard the whole thing. And at that moment, he wrote a will that I 
on his will, I give all of my possessions to my one son. But he didn't specify who the one son is. He doesn't know who the one son is. So after he died, shortly later he died, they see this will, all of his possessions, the property, the buildings, the cars, the jewelry, the money, all that stuff is going to one son. But who's the son? First one says, I'm the son. Second one says, I'm the son. Third one says, I'm the son. Third, fourth one, everyone says, I'm the son. Okay, well, we have to go to the Bedin. We have to go to the Bedin. They go to the Bedin. Who's the head of the Bedin? Rabbi Bana. Rabbi Bana says to them, you're right. Obviously, in his wisdom, if he's holy enough to go into the cave of Machpelah, this is no simple Dayan. In his wisdom, he knows what's happening here. He says, you're right. Something is wrong here. So, all of you, go take sticks, bats, metal, whatever you can get in your hand. Go to the grave of your, of your father and start smashing on the tomb, saying, give us the answer. Who's your son? Until a voice comes out from heaven and tells you who the son is. All of them go, except one kid. They come back, sees all of them, tired, sweaty, except one of them. Doesn't even have a bat in his hand. Rabbi, we didn't hear anything. He says, you didn't, but I did. I know who the one son is. Who? He is. And all of the possessions go to him. All the possessions go to him. Because a real son would never hit the tomb of his father. The fact that you went and hit the tomb, that shows you're not his father. As a side note, Rav Zilberstein, Paskins, and he says that if you ever see or hear that a son hit his parents, don't marry him. Don't marry him. Why? He's most likely a mamzel. He's safek mamzel. That the mother cheated. Why? Because if he's really the son, he's not going to hit the parents. Normal. I'm not talking about the three or four year old plays with the parents and, you know, sometimes they don't really know their own strength. I'm talking about, you know, a teenager, someone that has dot. Someone that has dot, someone that's already obligated mitzvot. They hit their parents. Rav Zilberstein says, don't marry them. Why? This person is safek mamzel. Because a real child doesn't hit their parents. It's not a normal thing. And he learns, and he uses this gemara as the source. So Rabbi Bana says, he is the son. Now, of course, these reshaim that hit the, uh, the grave, what do they do? They go to the goim now. They go to the goim, they go to the court of the goyim and they say we've been robbed you have in your country a uh, a judge that uh, is just uh decreeing to take away people's possessions without proof the king doesn't know who this guy is says okay arrest him and quickly they arrest them. So these Rashaim, we see they don't care about rabbis. They don't care about the truth. 
They care about money. So they don't care about putting the Gdola Dol, the biggest rabbi of the generation, putting him in jail. Why? He took my money. But of course, HaKadosh Baruch protects the Tzadikim. Rabbi Bana was also married to a very wise woman. When his wife heard that he's in prison, she went to the court of the king. And she says to the king, I have a case. I need the king to help me. The judges of the king. Yes, what's the case? So I had a slave and robbers cut off his head. They stripped his hide and they ate his flesh and they wouldn't, they would draw water with the hide and give students to drink from it. And they didn't even pay me for the hide or for the slave or for its rental. I want my money. The king has no idea what she's talking about. He looks at his judges, you know, all of his wise men. They're also saying, we don't know. Yeah, but she spoke in, she spoke in our language. She's not saying things that are different language. We still don't understand her. So the king says, well, this will be an embarrassment for us not to be able to address this little woman's uh, case. Let us summon one of the uh, wise men of the Jewish people. Who is a wise man among the Jews? So the wise men say, oh, there's a Rabbi Bana. Okay, let's bring him. Where is he? He's in your jail. Okay, bring him. They don't know he's our husband. They bring him. He says the case. She says the case again. So she's talking about a uh, skin bottle. Meaning what? That uh, they stole her sheep. That's the slave. Stole her sheep. They cut off his head. They turned his skin. That's what she said. That's what she means. The king was so impressed at his wisdom that he made Rabbi Bana one of his chief judges. In fact, the Gemara continues on the story and says that even the, uh, the other non-Jewish uh, judges started listening to Rabbi Bana and changed their own rules and changed even their motto of their court. Now, what do we learn from this story? Many things. But one of the things we learn is that the fish stinks at the top. The girl that was Imada's promiscuous gold digger didn't come from nothing. She came from a mother that was also a Zona. And those sons that hit the grave of the father didn't just become wicked that day. They were wicked already at their creation. So if a person wants to see the real reason of why society is where it is, you don't need to look at Hollywood and blame Hollywood. You don't need to look at the iPhones and blame the iPhones. You need to look at where are the parents in comparison to the grandparents, in comparison to the great-grandparents. Because the great-grandparents were much holier. And they observed the Torah. And they observed Kedusha. But the parents took it a step lower. And by the time it got to the parents of the next generation, 
all of a sudden, many things were dropped altogether. Desecrating Shabbat becomes standard. Promiscuity was the a stone throw away after immodesty became standard. And today, things are what they are, not because we have an iPhone or we have the internet. Those are just different tools for people to fulfill their evil. But evil has always been around, even at the time before the internet, even the time before the uh, filth that's out there in the world. It all starts with who the parents are and how they act when it comes to Kedusha. Now, if a person wants to elevate themselves, even though until now they've been an average person, but they want to create special neshamut. They don't want to just create another kid. They don't want to just be average. They want to do a little more. The Ramban gives us the way. And he says, we will forego speaking about the times of other men and we'll speak only concerning the proper time of intimacy for scholars. So we filled in that blank with everything we just said that went into the Gemara. Why is the Ramban skipping that step? Because generally speaking, the people that would study about Jewish intimacy and elevating themselves to the point of becoming holy were Torah scholars. So people that study this, people that learn this, typically want to be scholars, want to live a life of a scholar, wants to attain holiness. So he says, the proper time for scholars is just like the Rambam said, just like the Gemara Maseret Ketubot, page 62b said, on Friday night, Shabbat night. And regarding this, he brings a verse that David Melech says in Tehilim number 1, chapter 3. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Bring forth its fruit in its season. Asher piryo iten be'ito. Be'ito is this, is the time, the right time. For this is the season for scholars. So now, although the Torah scholar specifically is fulfilling this mitzvah of onah, on Shabbat, on Friday night. Everyone can take advantage of that special significance. And how much a person can take of it, we'll see. Why? The Zohar Kadosh. says the following Zohar Kadosh Parashat Kedoshim on page Peibet 82 Amud Aleph on the Matok Midvash edition it's page 325 he says says come and see a person sanctifies themselves as in, in preparation for intimacy 
just like the chaverim, chaverim is a, is a uh, reference to Torah scholars, sanctify themselves in their intimacy from Shabbat to Shabbat. Why, why is Shabbat of significance? Why pick Shabbat? He says, because during that time of Shabbat, there's also a unification in the upper heavens due to the sanctity of Shabbat itself. And therefore, the Talmidei Chachamim, the Torah scholars, restrain themselves to specifically be intimate on Shabbat. And some of them only on Shabbat. Meaning, this does not absolve them from being intimate at other times that they have to be intimate. There's an obligation for a Jew to be intimate with his wife on the night she goes to the mikveh, and also before he travels. If he has to travel, he has to be intimate with his wife before he travels, so long as she's obviously pure. But also, on a night of mikveh is an obligation for him to be in intimate with his wife mikveh night should be like no different than the wedding night in fact even if he's a big rabbi big scholar and he has a shield to lie in front of five thousand people but he knows that if he gives that shield he's going to miss mikveh night cancel the shield send a replacement that's how important mikveh night is but outside of those other obligatory times before he travels mikveh night and the such the Torah scholars specifically are intimate. In addition to that, they're intimate on Shabbat. Why? Because this is, as the Zohar says, Sha'at Ratzon, where there's a Yichud in the heavens of, due to the Shabbat, the holiness of Shabbat. And this makes it an hour of heavenly will. Ve'abracha and therefore the blessing is ready to come down to the world from that particular yichud from that unity of the husband and wife meaning that not only is there the holiness of the unity between a husband and wife in itself create a blessing but there's an additional blessing an additional heavenly power that is ready to come to the world and be added to that holiness, to that sanctity, specifically on Shabbat, no other day. This is also, many Chachamim also say this is also relevant on Yom Tov. But needless to say, a person does not have to wait for Yom Tov, that's only a few times a year, but rather Shabbat every week. Why is this a case? As mitabkim kulam yachad. Because then, all of the, let's just call it the spiritual fire, the spiritual sparks of holiness, connect as a result of this unity, the holiness of the husband, acting in holiness and modesty, the holiness of the wife, acting in holiness and modesty during this particular act, and the holiness of the time being Shabbat after Chatzot, after the middle of the night. Chatzot is different during different times of the night. If you get yourself 
one of these apps that tells you the times of the uh, day according to the Jewish calendar it's Chatzot is sometimes midnight sometimes a little after midnight depending on where you are in the world but if it's Shabbat after Chatzot that is the ideal time where this blessing is ready to come down and the added spiritual powers exist to increase the holiness of the act of intimacy that's already there and everything that comes from that act of intimacy meaning that whatever is created as a result of this intimacy whether it is a baby or a soul a neshama that is not going to turn into a baby but nonetheless it's still going to be a a neshama neshama of a convert neshama of something that hashem is going to use in his great world whatever comes out out of that intimacy as the result of it will have the extra sanctity of shabbat meaning it doesn't necessarily need to be you know the outcome being a baby for the act to be holy don't think that for a second the act is extraordinarily uh, holy even without a baby just like all of the holiness that was between Avraham and his wife Sarah on this it says the uh, the verse from uh, from the Torah uh, Parashat Kedushim that a uh, the one of the places in the Torah that says that a person has to uh, honor his mother and his father there's a couple of times in the Torah where it says you have to honor your parents but usually it says honor your father and your mother in Parashat Yitro it says honor your father and your mother but then later on when it says the mitzvah again it says honor your mother and your father Ish imo ve'aviv tirau that a man should uh, fear have have an awe of his mother and his father and observe Shabbat since the reason why it says this this verse the secret in this verse is just like just like this uh, uh, unity of the body to uh there there's a unity of the bodies to uh, sanctify each other on the eve of shabbat friday night during the uh uh the uh, the, the act of intimacy therefore there is an obligation on the whatever comes out from that act let's just say called a child comes out of that act that child will have a special awe of his parents a special awe of her parents why you were created not just in holiness of your the act between your parents but there's even the additional holiness that's unlike any other time of the year shabbat therefore that child will have an extra level of holiness and have awe of his parents or her parents he says the reason why it says observe my shabbats and not the shabbat in that verse 
is because it's referring to not just the Shabbat here, but also the heavenly Shabbat that is now combining in this act of Kedusha. That is, com- that is, it's combining with the Shabbat of the lower world, the world that we're in. And then after that, combining into the new creation of the husband and the wife. So here is a way for a couple not only to have an act of holiness, but elevate even that act of holiness even higher, even without being a Torah scholar. Now he does give a... uh, he says, kam Israel, is a praiseworthy Am Israel that do such a thing. This is something, what I just said, is something that every couple, every Jewish couple can do. Now, of course, this is not relevant to non-Jews, even if non-Jews are modest and nice and beautiful and wonderful, because the sanctity of Shabbat is not an obligation on them. There's still a sanctity to Shabbat, even, you know, for in general, but it's not the same obligation, obviously, for non-Jews. They're not obligated to, they're not allowed to keep Shabbat. But the point being is, is that for a Jewish couple to have the ability of having a child like Rav Kanievsky, have the ability of having a child like Rav Ovadia, have the ability to have a, literally, a Gdola doll in their house, without the parents necessarily being, you know, the biggest Torah scholars in the world. They're from people, they're good people, they're holy people, but they don't necessarily need to be the biggest scholars in the world. How do you get that type of neshama? It's easier to attain it on Shabbat. When the act itself is in holiness, it's at a specific holy time, which is chatzot, after chatzot, and most importantly, it's on a specific holy day, which is Shabbat. Now, if a person is already at a higher level, they already are a Torah scholar. The Zohar Kadosh elaborates on that even further. Again, this is not for everyone. This is only for specific people. Is that for those Torah scholars that the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 4, in the name of God, Hashem calls them Sarisim. And He gives them all these blessings. The Sarisim are really usually referring to people that can't have children. But yet we see that the in this verse, in uh, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 4, Hashem is saying, these Sarisim that observe my Shabbat, and he talks about all the wonderful blessings that they're going to get. The Zohar Kadosh gives the elaboration, who are these Sarisim? These Sarisim are Torah scholars that are causing themselves to be Sarisim, meaning they're causing themselves not to be intimate because they're not only withholding from intimacy like the rest of people, but they're specifically withholding themselves only to do it on Shabbat, aside from the obligatory times that I mentioned before, which is 
mikveh night or if they're before they travel the rest of people are doing it twice a week once a day whatever it is but these unless they're obligated to do it during the week because it's mikveh night they only are together on the uh, uh on uh, friday night why because they're specifically looking to create the special high level of neshamot that are combining everything together both the shabbat of this world shabbat of the upper world the holiness of the husband and the wife but also the holiness of the torah and the self-inflicted restraining that sanctifies a person now again that part may not be for you but the first part certainly can be and the chida writes in sefer chokhmat anach in parashat kedoshim that there's a hint to this whole thing that we just said in the verse in parashat kedoshim ve'et shabetotai tishmoru ani hashem it says ve'et shabetotai tishmoru ani is the if you take the first letter of each one of those words it spells ishto his wife and the chida says this is a remez this is a hint to the intimacy of talmidei chachamim of torah scholars that is from shabbat to shabbat meaning only on shabbats why because it says ani hashem i am god after it says observe the shabbat it says honor your father your mother uh no fear your mother and your father observe shabbat i am god that's how the verse goes so we know that uh, no the mother and the father fine we know the shabbat fine but also at the end of that verse it also says ani hashem so the chida says why does the end of the verse say ani hashem what's the hint there because hashem it's that the heavenly zivug it says that ani hashem is because the heavenly zivug to the act of intimacy is on shabbat when the heavenly powers are added to it and that's why on this day even if a person has other torah he wants to learn and so on he says put the torah aside to fulfill this mitzvah because it's an auspicious time and really the only time you can make this heavenly yichud now the last question is if this is so special of being together and so on why wasn't an answer in the mishnah itself like everybody else the sailor the donkey rider the camel rider all those people the tailor all those people the maram chief says because of tznut because of modesty what does it mean because of modesty when you're speaking to the average people out there you have to speak to them in their level still in accordance to the Torah but the holier person is the holier their language is so much so that in the Torah itself Hashem will add specific words to the Torah that really are 
seem like they're, they're extra words just to avoid saying the word tumah. Just to avoid saying the word impure. He will add multiple words to describe it, whereas it's the opposite of the nature of the way he wrote the Torah. In the Torah, he minimized everything to be precise and exactly on point. But when it comes to specific things that are of negative, whether it's immodesty or promiscuity or impurity, things like that, Hashem literally changed the rules of the Torah out of his ultimate modesty. And therefore, his Torah scholars also speak with a clean tongue, clean, clean uh, language. So much so that the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 33a says, everyone knows what the kala or why the kala is going into the cheder yichud the, the room alone with our husband for the first time like meaning what's going to happen that night they get married everyone knows but anyone that speaks about that out loud even if it was decreed for this person to have 70 years of blessings they're turned into curses why everyone knows we're not stupid but why are you desecrating your mouth and Rav Chisda adds further a person that desecrates their mouth speaks with foul language talks about filthy things no modesty in their speech and so on this is a person that Genom gets deeper for them this is also the same Shabbat. So the point being is, is that every person has to know where they stand. Even if a person started in the worst possible level, like the filthy zona that was in the story that cheated on a husband 10 times or more, they could still elevate themselves. How high? Depends on them. If a person is obviously much better than that, they can elevate themselves. If a person is even higher than that and they're a rabbi, a Torah scholar watching this right now, they were just reminded of what they learn every single day. You can elevate yourself. I can elevate myself. How? Sanctity of speech, sanctity of intimacy of action taking a kadosh Hu with you everywhere especially in the most intimate places because if you have a kadosh Hu in mind at all times you can certainly create some of the most extraordinary souls that the world has ever seen just like avraham avinu did and may it be his will that someone that's watching and learning with us succeeds in doing so and delivering this message to others. Now, as a side note, I know that the Yetzirah comes to different people in different ways and says to them, everything is good, what you said, I like it, but you can't take a shower on Shabbat. And uh, you know, I'm a clean freak. Although you can't take a shower, you can still clean yourself with cold water. Now I told this once to somebody, and they told me, yeah, but I can't do a clean water, the cold water. 
It doesn't feel uh, like it does the job or it's too cold. No worry, there's a solution for that too. Every Jewish home has an urn, hot water urn. Take some hot water over the urn, put it in a bowl, put some cold water. Voila! You can wash yourself that way. And if you're a female, it's even easier. The point being is, the only reason you didn't want to is because your Yetzirah was the only thing that existed until now. Yetzirah told you it's not clean, I could just wait for Motzei Shabbat, I can wait till Sunday, I can wait till Tuesday. But now you've learned enough to hopefully create a bigger Yetzirah Tov, good inclination, that shows you that it's worth it to try a little harder in this upcoming Shabbat. And every Shabbat that you can. Why? Because whether a baby comes out of it or not, you are producing holiness by uniting with the Creator on Shabbat. You're producing holiness. Now for those of you that are familiar with the holiness of the tzaddikim, the holiness of the tzaddikim saves lives. And we'll finish off tonight with a story of a beautiful couple that created holiness that we still benefit from till this day. Rav Ezra Atiyah is one of the most well-recognized names in the world of Jewry over the last hundred years because his Talmidim, one after another, were G'dolei Adol. Rosh Hashivah of Purat Yosef. But many people don't know how much struggle Rav Ezra Atiyah had to overcome in order to produce such beautiful fruits. But he didn't do it alone. Yet is Rabbanit Bolisa. His Rabbanit Bolisa, which he loved dearly, was his partner in everything. But one day, Rav Ezra Atiyah comes home and he sees his Rabbanit is laying on the bed half dead asking him in a whisper please take me to the hospital now something is wrong the rabbi shocked immediately took her to the hospital Sharet Sedek hospital they got to the hospital and after some testing the doctor came out and told Rav Ezra Atiyah the terrible news. I'm sorry. It's too late. She's dying. And there's nothing we can do. Perhaps the doctor forgot that Akadosh Baruch Hu decides if it's too late or not. Because the machine said it's too late. His colleague said it's too late. The nurses said it's too late, and the Rabbanit, her health was deteriorating so fast, it all seemed too late. Rab Ezra Atiyah immediately left the hospital and went to the grave of the Saba Kadisha of Shlomo Eliezer Alfandri and started crying to Akadosh Baruch Hu at the gravesite of the Tzaddik. He said, Ribbono Shulam, 
All I do is I teach Torah to your children. All I do is dedicate myself to learn Torah and teach your kids. But if you, how can I do that if I don't have Belisa? If I don't, I don't do that if I don't have my, my dear wife, my partner and everything. How could I do it? I can't do it anymore. Why, Akadosh Baruch Hu? I want to I keep teaching Torah. I want to keep teaching your kids. Please, Akadosh Baruch Hu, help me. Crying hysterical at the gravesite. After he finished praying, came back to the hospital. As soon as he entered the building, crossed all the way down the hall, the, hus- the, the, the head doctor spots him and starts running towards him. Rabbi, Rabbi, you got to see this. You got to see this. Yes, what? Come, come. He brings him. He brings him. He takes him. Like it, you know, it's, they're running. He doesn't know what's going on. You got to see this. You got to see this. And they come to the room where his wife is there. And he sees his wife standing healthy as if nothing happened and even more. She feels better than she felt in years. The doctor says, Rabbi, we have just witnessed a open miracle. We checked her again. There's no sign of the disease. There's no sign of anything. She's healthy as a newborn baby. We have no idea how, but we do know that it's a miracle. And then the Rabbanit Bolisa says, My dear husband, I want to tell you something. What happened while you were gone? I fell asleep. And I had a dream. And the Sabbath Kadisha, Rav Alfandri, came to me in my dream. And he yelled at me, What are you doing? Causing your husband to not learn as much Torah and slowing him down. Get up right now. Go home and be healthy. And smiled. And a dream ended. I woke up. And all of a sudden, all the pain was gone. In fact, I felt healthier than ever. I got up out of the bed. They thought something went wrong. They didn't know what's going on. They started checking me. Everything is gone. Rav Ezra Atiyah prayed at the grave of Rav Al-Fandri to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not to Rav Al-Fandri. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent Rav Al-Fandri as the messenger. Why? Because they produce Kedusha. They learned Torah. They taught Torah. They had Kedusha between them. But none of that would have existed without the love between them as well. Be'ezrat Hashem. This too will be a story and a lesson that will give all of us chizuk to do as much as we possibly can to sanctify ourselves, our marriages, and be together at the perfect time. Until then, Enjoy this you, share it with others, subscribe to the channels, donate if possible, but most importantly, be holy.